I'm, this morning, I'm going to be teaching on James 4, as you know. And I have to say that James 4 is um, pretty straightforward. So I was telling my husband, oh, it's just, it's just so out there. You know, it's just so straightforward. It's just not a, anything profound. And I was so struck with everything God says is profound. His ways are always profound. What I mean was that it's simple and yet really hard to apply. So, um, but we're going to attempt to maybe think it through in application today. How do we apply James 4 to our lives? Scripture is layered. And what I mean by that is that the Bible is such a living, powerful book that it has much to say to all generations for all of time. It is all about God, what he, who he is, how he thinks, how he wants us to live, that is truth for all time. Some of it is historical, and yet it's layered with prophecy. Some of it is written to a, a specific church, and yet it applies to the eternal universal church for all time. It speaks sometimes to a specific group of people, to maybe to one generation or group of uh, one period of time, and yet it's truth for all generations, for all of time, because Scripture is layered. And so in studying James 4 this week, it struck me that from one perspective, one layer, this entire chapter could be a manual on how to deal with conflict. Now, probably most of you today have already dealt with some kind of conflict this morning. Maybe you got a phone call on your way here, and there's a problem, and so you feel conflict. Maybe you had a fight with your husband this morning or last night, and it's still heavy on your mind. Maybe there was an issue at work, and you were put in the middle of some situations where tempers flared, and you feel conflicted. Perhaps you interacted with a neighbor on the way here, and before you left your home, and there was like a little edge in your conversation. Possibly you just found out there was a charge made on your credit card that you didn't put there, and that makes you feel conflicted. Or maybe you drove up to church, and you saw that woman, and you felt that tension rise. Maybe your grown child is making poor choices, and you've had words. Conflict is often a daily issue, isn't it? And as we've seen already, God, through James, addresses our lives in a practical manner. What could be more practical than how to deal with conflict? We need to know, first of all, truth about who God is, how he thinks, and what he expects. However, as we've seen in James, just knowing the truth, is of little value if we're not doers of the word. So what should we learn from James 4? We're going to look at this chapter from three points. The reason for conflict, the realities about conflict, and our responses to conflict. So let's pray and ask God to give us a perspective to look within and to change our hearts that God would that we would look at, examine ourselves and let God change our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is uh, profoundly true, profoundly 
honest, profoundly simple, and yet profound. And Lord, I thank you that you have not left us helpless, that you have given us the Holy Spirit who can enable us to do what you've asked us to do. We pray, Father, that we would be open our hearts before you and let you examine us, that you can change us. And we trust you to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. What does James say is the reason for conflict? Well, verse 1 is pretty straightforward. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This passions in the Greek is a word hedone, which we get the word hedonism, hedonistic. And it's usually a negative connotation. It's a sensuous pleasure, a desire that's strong. Often the, end, the pleasure is the end in itself. So within us, we have these hedonist pleasures fighting within us, warring within us. And yet James tells us that those passions within us are what causes conflict. The first thing we need to realize about conflict is that the source of conflict is not another person. It is not that neighbor. It is not your child. It is not your husband. It is not your coworker or that person on the phone or that situation. None of those things are the conflict. They didn't cause the conflict. The conflict, they might have been the catalyst that sparked it, but the reason, the source of that conflict are the passions at war within us, each of us, in our own hearts. And when we realize that fact, we will stop blaming somebody else for the conflict that we feel and we'll deal with the real problem. The reason for conflict, quarrels, and fights is because of the passions in our own hearts. And that's where we need to begin dealing with it. But that's just the beginning of realizing the realities about conflict. Verse 2 says, we desire and do not have whatever it is. So we murder. I'm kind of offended by that because I haven't murdered anybody. And uh, I don't think I ever have. I don't think I ever will. But let's take what might be an everyday scenario where we might experience conflict, uh, conflict and see where murder fits in with that. My child just tried out for the team, but she wasn't selected. Now, I know that my child is a lot better than her, and yet the coach picked her because her mama's better friends with the coach. And that stirs up conflict in me. I feel those desires for my little girl to be valued, for me to be able to brag a little bit about how talented she is. And besides, she doesn't have very many friends, and I want her to be in with a really good friend group. And besides, I never made that squad when I was in high school, that team, and I want my baby not to feel the rejection I did. In fact, I think I'll let the other mamas know how warped that coach is anyway, how unfair, how that coach plays favorites. And I wouldn't want my child to play on a team with a coach like that anyway. The conflict that I have just described is not actually caused by the coach or his decision. The conflict is my own passions warring within. 
I desired something I did not have, my child being on the team, which in itself is not a bad thing that I wish that. But now I have murdered the coach and his reputation by talking to all these other people about him. So in a sense, I did commit murder. I murdered his reputation. The reality is that there will be desires in our lives which won't be fulfilled. And the conflict we feel will need, need to be addressed within our own hearts. The reality is that I need to bring my tongue under God's authority, like James 3 talked about, so that I will not murder the reputation of others or of that coach or, anyone, or that ch child on the team either. Verse 2 also tells us that we covet and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel. Is there something that you covet of another person? I just wish I were married. I wish I could have children. If only I had grandchildren. If I just had a marriage like hers. If I could look like her. Oh, I wish I had lots of money. These are often things over which we have little to no control. These are things we cannot obtain. And this creates fights and quarrels, James tells us, within us. Against whom? Who are we fighting and quarreling with? Well, usually it's the Lord, whether or not we want to admit that at first. Usually we're arguing against God, and we let it affect our home lives and our relationships because we're disappointed that God has not given us what we want or he has not given us what we covet. Ladies, the reality is that there are desires we will have, things that we cannot obtain or control, and the conflict we feel will need to be addressed within our own hearts. Verse 2 tells us that the de desires with which we struggle could be because we haven't asked God for it. Why haven't we? Is it a lack of faith? Do we know that we really shouldn't be asking for this? Or have we forgotten that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift? The reality is that we can and should ask him about our desires. He delights in our talking to him, and it's fine to ask him. And that conflict might be diminished. We might be more at peace if we just ask. But what if I've asked and God still says no? Verse 3 points out that sometimes God does not uh, give us what we want because we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions and on our pleasures. Sometimes we ask for things with wrong motives, and God does not often give us things we desire if we're just asking to expend it on our earthly pleasures. In fact, those desires are just indications that we're thinking like the world, that that friendship with the world kind of thinking has come in. We want to look like the world. We care about the things from a worldly perspective. And God wants us to be aware that this is actually opposition with him because friendship with the world makes us an enemy with God. And verse 5 appeals to us and says, don't you know that God is jealous to rule in your heart? And he wants to be the one that we long for and we desire for the same thing that he cares about. So what would that look like in our lives today? Maybe when we ask for something with wrong motive. 
maybe it would look like this. I really would like to have a new house. I've just dreamed of that perfect farmhouse, open concept kitchen. I can picture how my dishes will look on those open shelves. I have saved little folders on Pinterest, and I pulled pictures out of magazines. I know how I want the bedroom to look and the wall color. I am really tired of this dated 1970s floor plan with my marble tile foyer, and I think it is about time we did something about it. Then my husband comes in, and he excitedly tells me he has accepted a job with a new company, one that has lots of potential and a cut in salary. My heart is pounding, and I feel my temperature rising. I feel angry, and I want to lash out at my husband. How dare he take a job with a lower salary? Doesn't he know I've been waiting for him to get a raise so I can afford this new house? Doesn't he know how embarrassed I am when friends come over? Most of our friends have nice new homes. I don't want them to think we can't afford it. The reality is that God knows what is best for us, not what we think is best for us. He knows what is best for us, and he will not give us that which is harmful for our soul. The conflict we need is within, and we need to deal with our own hearts. Okay, so at this moment I'm thinking, well, that feels kind of, ugh. I mean, I've got all these unmet desires, and what am I supposed to do about all that? And this is where our sweet God does not lead us alone without direction. He doesn't leave us hanging to figure out what to do, so he kind of instructs us how to proceed. Verse 6 tells us simply, he gives more grace. You think you can't live without that thing? He gives more grace. You think you can't live with that disappointment? He gives more grace. Does it seem overwhelming? He gives more grace. God promises such grace to the humble, not to the proud. So the next few verses are kind of instructions about how to respond to the conflict. And they're straightforward commands. Verse 7 tells us to submit ourselves to God. Lay down those desires before him. Remind yourself that he knows what is best. And I'm telling you, this is not an easy thing. This may be a, a step in what to do, but it is not an easy step. It is not something we quickly check off our list. We are stubborn women. And we often think we're capable of taking care of things for ourselves. But nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. We are in desperate need of our Lord and he will give us what we need. But, oh, if we would lay it down, those desires before him, our hearts would experience so much more peace. Verse 7 also then says, resist the devil, and the promise is he will flee from you. Of course, in this process, if you're really seeking to submit yourself to God, to deal with these conflicts within, you'll probably almost immediately struggle with thoughts of doubt and rebellion. And recognize it for what it is. The enemy it wants to keep you believing lies. And he wants to keep you defeated from growing in your faith. Things like, if God was really good, he wouldn't hold this back from you. What, or you've really done something terrible or God would have given this to you. Or, you'll never get anything you ever want. This Christian life is just too hard. We'll need to make a choice, ladies. I will not ponder these thoughts. I won't let my mind stay there. 
I will choose to think on what God has said is true. And you'll probably have to continue resisting those thoughts over and over, but keep at it. Because God has promised that if we resist by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that you as a believer have in you, you will be able to resist and he will flee. Then we're told in verse 8 to draw near to God. How do we do that? Move nearer to God in prayer, in time in the word, in seeking him and asking for direction and wisdom. Move toward him. And he has promised that he will draw near to us. Now, it is not that God has ever left or moved. It's just that we will be more aware of his presence. We will know his nearness to us. Then we're told to cleanse our, our hands and purify our hearts. So we are to confess our sinful ways. Search to see if you're dealing with dregs of passion that are left within. Be repentant. Agree with God about your sin. Don't, be, don't excuse it. Don't be defensive. Because God is serious about us living holy lives. Then we're told to humble ourselves before him. We are beggars before a great king. There is no room for us to prove we're right or assume we know best. He, the king of kings and lord of lords, knows what we need, and we are desperate for his help. Then 11 and 12 tell us not to speak evil of one another. In this layer about conflict, in this perspective, why is that verse here? Well, when we're struggling, fighting, quarreling, we forget that the source is within, and we tend to speak evil of others, how they caused this problem, it's their fault, and we tend to blame others. So it's very applicable, and James tells us, not to do that. He says if we speak evil against one another, our neighbor, we are actually seeing ourselves as above the law. In other words, we've made ourselves the interpreter of the law, the judge of the law. And there is only one judge, one interpreter, one lawgiver, God himself. So who are we to take that role? He alone has the power to save and destroy. And this last section about our plans, what's that about from this layer? Making plans and they're getting interrupted. Do you ever feel conflict over an interrupted schedule? Do you ever have plans and when they're changed, do you feel angry and argumentative? Do you end up yelling at someone because they're interrupting your day and things didn't go like you wanted? I know it's true for me. So, um, what caused that? It isn't the other person. It's what's within. Just a second, I'm looking for my page. Okay, here we go. Um, my plans were God-ordained. The interruptions were his idea. And my plans will always need to be flexible because his plans are always better and for my good. So how might this look in some scenario in my life? Let's just take one. And by the way, I didn't pick on anybody. So this is just maybe something that might be some with tweaking might be your situation. I have just learned that my son, and this is not true, by the way. But I've just learned that my son-in-law has accepted a job across the country. And now I won't be close to my daughter or grandchildren. My first thought might be, 
I cannot believe that my son-in-law is even thinking of doing this to me. How inconsiderate. He has always been so ambitious about his career. And I think I'll call my daughter and let her know what a jerk he is. And I, you know what? I might even call his mom and, and ask her to pray about this situation because we need her son to really be led. And in there, maybe I can let her know how inconsiderate and uncaring he is. My blood pressure's risen and I'm fuming. And instead, I need to stop and think, what's the reason for that conflict I feel? My son-in-law's not the problem. Those desires in me are waging war, and they are the reason I feel conflict. The reality is that I need to bring my tongue under God's authority so that I've not killed the relationship with my son or my daughter or his mother. And I can and should, and it's fine for me to ask God for what I want. But I need to recognize I may have wrong motives. And he may say no, because he knows what's best. I must submit myself and my desires to God, recognizing that the enemy will probably come and try to tempt me to doubt God's goodness. I will need to resist him and then draw near to God. It is crucial that I confess my sinful thoughts and reactions to God and repent of them with honesty. I need to repent of any sins I might have already committed in that process and confessing any friendship with the world kind of motives that will bring me back to peace with God. And with humility, giving my desires and my dreams and my thoughts to him, I will entrust myself to God, refusing to blame someone else and entrusting my plans to his perfect one. He will give me more grace because he has promised that's the way God wants us to handle conflict. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you will um, help us today when we walk out of this place. Lord, we're going to hit conflict somewhere. I pray that you will cause us to remember that your ways are right, that you will give us what we need to deal with it. May we submit to your good plans, God, and to resist the devil and to entrust them to you. Thank you that you love us so much that you give us instruction. We are grateful, Lord. I pray for us to be wise as we leave. In your name we pray, amen.